Afghanistan, UK and US commanders say exactly how it is. We're developing their capabilities so they can provide security here in Afghanistan. And they're not ready yet. And they are not ready yet. And America reacts to North Korea's fiery rhetoric. Some of the actions they've taken over the last few weeks present a real and clear danger. Britain and America's most senior generals in Afghanistan have both stressed the need to keep supporting the country's own security forces over the coming months. The traditional summer fighting season is expected to start within weeks and it will be the first time the Afghan army and police have been in total charge of taking on the insurgency. The US commander of ISAF and his British deputy say while international forces should let the Afghans do the work, it's essential they're ready to get involved if needed. From Afghanistan, James Hurst reports. ISAF still has around 100,000 troops in this country, but the numbers are falling and they'll pretty much all be gone in less than two years. The handover to Afghan security lead is happening faster than originally planned and is being completed at the moment. But it's not total transition, it's only a step, something stressed by General Joseph Dunford when he spoke to America's ABC News in his first TV interview as Commander ISAF. We're working on the Afghan National Security Forces, we're developing their capabilities so they can provide security here in Afghanistan. And they're not ready yet. And they are not ready yet. His message has been echoed by his British deputy, Lieutenant General Nick Carter, who told the independent newspaper... It would be unforgivable if we allowed the gains of the last three years to be lost because we were not able to provide the Afghans with the support to take this through into 2014. Reports in the UK have characterised this as a warning against cutting troop numbers this summer. The Ministry of Defence says what he was actually doing was explaining long-standing British military and government policy. General Carter told The Independent that in an ideal world, British troops will be advising and training Afghans from behind the wire this summer. But if they get into trouble, we are able to put power into the field to support them. That, he says, is essential to keep the confidence of Afghans themselves, because transition is not just military, it's also political. In a small room in Nadali, sat under a portrait of President Hamid Karzai, Afghans elected to the District Council hold Ashura. UN observers have been to see Helmand's new local democracy in action. It's pretty much unique in this country, and the district governor says it has changed people's lives. Security in this area has improved so much in the last few years that it's allowed us to set up this council to govern the local people. We now have excellent coordination not only with ISAF, but more importantly with the local people through the district council. It means that we can provide for the community and create a safer and better place to live. The idea is such locally-led governance will get the Afghan people on board to develop their country's future. For General Dunford, that remains one of the most important challenges. The lack of confidence uh, in the uncertainty uh, that are felt by the Afghan people. And I think the Taliban will attempt to feed those fears of the people about the post-2014 environment. It's part of a broad message from the top of ISAF this week that while Afghans may be taking more and more control of their country, right now there is still a job to be done by international forces, albeit a different one from this time last year. James Hurst reporting from Afghanistan and James can join us now from Camp Bastion and with me here in the studio as ever is our defence analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you. James, first of all, are these warnings about a job still to be done from both these commanders significant? I think you need to look at perhaps who they are aimed at. They are uh, domestic American and domestic British media. And I think they're trying to counter. There is a sense of frustration from some here 
about some reports effectively suggesting that the war is over and people are standing around kicking their heels and they say that is not what is going on. There are still tens of thousands of ISAF troops in this country and they are here for a reason and they want to put, push that message so that people at home understand why their men and women are still serving in Afghanistan. You talk about pushing that message. Is there any change in that message from ISAF? Not really. I mean, I think you look back over the last year, I was here this time last year, and we didn't know exactly when the Afghans were going to be in the lead for security. Fast forward to May of last year, and a date was set for the middle of this year, the summer. Since then, it's been revised forward again to the spring, effectively about now. The Afghans are pretty much supposed to be in the lead. So there has been a, a, a rapid evolution but now we are pretty much in, into a point where the plan has to be followed through. Uh, Christopher uh, talks about work to, still to be done. Um, how significant against that backdrop are these tax in Farah that we have? It's, it's, it's right on the spot. Yeah, um, James was saying earlier about you know the work to be done. The military know there's work to be done. It was complete and utter foul up this week. Uh, failure of intelligence, failure of the Afghan army to control what was going up on the bo- of uh, Farah. Uh, it's, a, it's a province, it's on the border of, uh, of Afghanistan, it's vulnerable, people can't get there. If you want to go to the route from Kandahar where you run all the drugs up there and also a lot of the human traffic that runs up there, that's where you go. The Afghans have failed to be able to defend it. And so what happens on Tuesday, uh, something like... 60, 50 to 60 people get themselves killed uh, with an attack. They were trying to release some of the prisoners, Taliban prisoners. About 100 people are blown up as well. That is happening all the time. And if you want to know when the last time something like this happened and where it happened, it happened in Farah as well. And so they got plenty of warning. They knew what was going to happen. They couldn't pinpoint it and they couldn't get troops there in time to defend. James, um, how important is the UK perception of, of the conflict? I think it is certainly important for the people serving out here that they want to to feel supported. I've heard that from from many individuals over time, and I certainly think Britain's politicians feel a need to constantly explain to the people of Britain that uh, UK troops are here for a reason. That reason, they will tell you over and over, is because of UK security. And they say, you know, the job to secure the UK is still to be done. And I think, as I said, there is that frustration that perhaps people feel that with some of the articles that have appeared effectively suggesting that you know, it's pretty much over here, that people thought there would be no more British losses. And, of course, we have seen in recent weeks the, the rate of losses is much slower than it was a year, two years ago. But we are still having people laying down their lives serving for Britain out here. Christopher, um, President Hamid Karzai went to Qatar for talks with the Taliban. The Taliban didn't show up, from what I read. Um, how far ahead is the political solution to the problem in Afghanistan? Uh, some of them did actually show up. but it, was, it wasn't It wasn't the set piece that they actually wanted. The idea has been is that Taliban should open up an office, have a bureau in, in Qatar, and, and so that you can go, you've got a point of contact, you know who to call, etc. And you can do this all the time, so you don't have to have a big set-piece thing like Kazai going. So is it working then? The, no, it's not working yet, and it won't work for a long time. A part of the problem, or not a problem, but part of the task now, is actually to protect Afghanistan 
uh, with Karzai on the way out because the next stage will be elections and Karzai won't be standing, or not as the law or the constitutional law exists at the moment. So take place all sorts of things to get a new leadership. The other part of it, and I don't know if James sort of hears this talked about um, on the spot, there is a feeling among the intelligence people that they are waiting for Taliban to do a spectacular. Now, what happened up in Farah is a sort of spectacular, but nothing like this, because Taliban want to say at the end of this, we chased them out, because the, the Taliban's biggest battle is not now with ISAF, Taliban's biggest battle is with the people of Afghanistan. James, um, 2013 Christopher. is always... Sorry, go on. I was going to say, Christopher has, has highlighted an important point, as you say, about 2013 being pivotal. Um, but but this, this issue is... You know, you asked me about British perception. I think to people here, far more concern is about the Afghan perception of, of how it's going. And that is something that Joseph Dunford highlighted this week. They want the Afghans to have confidence in what happens from here on in to get involved in that political process, to get involved in those elections next year. And it's not just the summer fighting season, it is those elections that are a real test. All right, James Hurst in Afghanistan, thank you. This is BFBS. Sit rep. Well, a key player in the future of Afghanistan is, of course, one of its neighbours, Pakistan. And a month from now, the country will be holding historic national elections. It's due to hold parliamentary vote on the 11th of May, the first transition between democratically elected governments in a country that's experienced three military coups and constant political instability since its creation in 1947. This week, the Pakistan chief of the army staff, General, Ashfaq Pervez Kayani met with General Joseph Dunford, commander of ISAF, in an effort to strengthen military cooperation. Uh, Christopher, the Pakistan-US relationship has not been an easy one in the last 12 months, has it? Uh, no, it hasn't. In fact, it hasn't really been an easy one uh, for the whole sort of decade of the, of the fighting there. Um, what's you know, you made a point about uh, a transition government. It is remarkable when you consider that Pakistan came into being in 1947. This is the first time a government has actually run its course for, uh, for, five, for, for five years. But the Pakistanis have got uh, a, a new problem or a re-emerging problem. Uh, it's somewhere that we never talk about, Baluchistan. And there's a rebel grouping in Baluchistan which can disrupt the whole of... If, if you like, the whole of Pakistan politics. Um, when we think of Kayani, we think of a safe pair of hands, the general who runs the thing, who took over from Musharraf, who's standing as a candidate in the elections, General Musharraf. And we think of him, safe pair of hands, that'll be all right, no problems about the, the military. Beneath him, beneath the chiefs of staff corridor, if you like, there's a group of very, very senior officers with uh, provincial instincts and provincial followings. And those are the people that sit there and mumble and wonder if it's not about time that the military got back. There's another thing going on which will, which will cause them a lot of problems. And that is with people like Mashara Stanning and Imran Khan, who used to, uh, the cricketer, who's a politician now, um, there is an assassination watch and Pakistan politics and election politics has got a history of assassinations and these guys are very, very vulnerable. That's the atmosphere. I mean, just talking about it in that minute or so, the instability that remains in Pakistan is extremely evident. How could the elections and what happens there in the future change things for Afghanistan? Uh, because there has to be guarantors 
for the future. You have to, for example, as uh, Taliban, this Afghan Taliban, this Pakistan Taliban, uh, the military, especially the intelligence services, uh, uh, sponsor almost parts of Taliban. That's got to be sort of staged down when ISAF with, uh, withdraws. So you've got uh, Pakistan has got to be able to do that with Afghanistan's blessing and talk to and, and talk to them. They've also got to bring in India because India's got political and military concerns. They have to bring bring in, believe it or not, Iran into this conversation. And then also the Central Asian republics. It's not simply about Kabul. Stay with us, Christopher. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, North Korea continues its saber-rattling. I've spoken with uh, South Korean friends who say that, you know, they won't start paying attention until a bomb actually falls on Seoul. And the RAF celebrates 95 years. But what will the Air Force look like in years to come? BFBS SIPREP. U.S. Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel has warned that North Korea's development of nuclear weapons poses a growing threat to the U.S. and its allies. He said some of the, the actions they've taken over the past few weeks present a real and clear danger. As a result, the Pentagon has confirmed that it will send a missile defense system to Guam. North Korea says final approval has been given for it to launch a nuclear strike. Yesterday, the North banned South Korean managers and trucks delivering supplies from crossing the border to enter the Kaesong Industrial Park. That didn't even happen during 2010's boat sinking episode. So what's the difference now? Reporter Jason Strother is based in Seoul. We spoke to him a short while ago to ask what Pyongyang is looking to achieve. The Kaesong Joint Industrial Complex has withstood much of the tensions over the past 10 years. Um, North Korea doesn't have a lot of bargaining chips, and it's and it was angered last week when officials here in South Korea uh, kind of said uh, that, oh, the North will never close down Kaesong because that's how they get a lot of their hard currency. And that those comments did not sit well with Pyongyang. So they're threatening uh, to close down. They're, they've been threatening now to close down the complex altogether, all 123 South Korean factories there. Um, there are still South Korean staff in Kaesong, about a little over 800 right now, I'm told by the Unification Ministry. Um, and now North Korea uh, today announced that it might withdraw, it's threatening to withdraw its 40-some thousand uh, staff uh, that work in all these factories. You say about it being a, a bargaining chip in, in essence. What, after all of this rhetoric over the last week, really ramping up to this permission in theory for a nuclear strike on the United States that Pyongyang has announced that it's now rubber stamped. What's the end game to all of this? North Korea wants to bring Seoul, but more importantly, Washington to the negotiating table. They want to sit down uh, with, with the U.S. They want to talk about aid for denuclearization. They want to, they want to talk about uh, providing humanitarian assistance in exchange for perhaps ending aspects of its weapons conventional or nuclear weapons program. Uh, but it's, and in the past, this type of brinksmanship has always worked. It happened in, in 1994 before the agreed framework was signed. Uh, and it's happened throughout the past decade. Uh, South Korean presidents uh, afraid of angering Pyongyang and pushing them over the edge would would send envoys and re-engage in humanitarian talk or other inter-Korean cooperation projects. But now both Seoul, uh, with its new president, Park Geun-hye, and the Obama administration, which takes a pretty tough stance on the North Korean regime, they don't seem to be... Uh, 
they're not rolling over for the North. They've they've heard all the rhetoric before. They've heard the threats before. They're taking them seriously, of course. The U.S. is now moving uh, missile interceptors to Guam. Uh, but I don't see any sign that either South Korean politicians or American politicians are ready to sit down for dialogue with the North. And how about the feeling in Seoul when people hear this kind of language? Are they just used to it? Absolutely. Uh, South Koreans have heard it all before. Uh, most seem very apathetic to what's going on. I've spoken with uh, South Korean friends who say that you know they won't start paying attention until a bomb actually falls on Seoul. And that seems pretty extreme, I, I think, to people who aren't living here. But it's just a, it's a reality. Uh, people go on with their daily lives. They don't seem to take North Korea very seriously. Um, and in the past, when North Korea struck, like in 2010, these, these incidents in 2010, uh, many South Koreans were more apt to blame the South Korean government for allowing it to happen. So uh, there, there's really a disconnect here. People just don't see the urgency uh, at this moment. That was reporter Jason Strother talking to SITREP's David Spencer from Seoul. Uh, Christopher is still here and also joining us is Air Marshal Sir John Walker, who was chief of the intelligence staff from 1991 to 1994. Firstly, Sir John, uh, thanks for your time today. This North Korean leadership is a real unknown quantity, isn't it? Well, I'm afraid so, and that is uh, uh, an unfortunate combination of factors. One is a a fairly unknown uh, leadership, but at the same time that we have got nuclear weapons and ballistic missiles starting to enter the equation. And that's a nasty combination. Is there really any substance to these threats, and, and how easily could a war start? Well, it's very, it's very difficult to... Uh, to to consider that because North Korea has been a closed state or very largely a closed state for a very long time. It is the last bastion in the world of old-fashioned communism. Uh, and it has the problem of coming to grips and it's going to have to come to grips very, very soon with the fact that it hasn't worked. And it's going to be very difficult for people, even the old and the young in North Korea, where they can look as much as they're allowed to look uh, just to the immediate south of them to see the huge success of all the things that they politically have derided in the past, a very highly successful, proper, prosperous, uh, modern Western state of South Korea. Uh, Christopher, we hear Pyongyang has now said, given the go-ahead to its military to make a strike on the US, as it says today, what, what exactly are its capabilities and what kind of mood, m move might it be likely to make? Okay, just quickly, though, it's made a statement. What is twitching people like Chuck Hagel you were talking about in Washington is that in previous uh, situations like this, it's been the foreign ministry and the defence ministry that made statements. This is the first time that the leader has ever made statements. Not just this leader, And why but the do you think he's decided to do that now? Because he says, you know, I'm getting a grip of this whole thing, and he's got to prove things to his generals, etc. But that's, that's a bit of speculation. What can they do? Um, for example, when they talk about, uh, oh, military strike and nuclear strike, they haven't got the capability of firing a missile with a nuclear warhead on it at the moment. But they've got missiles that go from uh, in four stages. They've got one that goes 1,000, another one that goes, uh, what, 2,200 uh, kilometres, another 4,000, 6,000 kilometres. That's the top of Australia, 
Alaska, Guam, etc. It doesn't matter that they're not accurate. You don't have to be accurate. You just have to dump one somewhere and people say that was very bad. You look at 75% of their military at the moment. 75% of their military, and we're talking around about seven, eight hundred thousand pounds, uh, seven hundred, eight thousand people, including I don't know, eight thousand artillery, etc. A couple of thousand tank armor divisions. They're all all within 90 miles of the DMZ. Now that's pretty close. So if they wanted to move, they could possibly move quite quickly but what intelligence people are looking at at the moment is 8th Army Corps 8th Army Corps' task is to protect the rocket sites, the main rocket sites in the, uh, in the Pyongyang uh, province and that is it and you, when they start to move, when they start to come up from category B to category A or probably B- minus to category A, then you say these guys are not simply getting serious but they're actually having to do what the beloved leader is telling them to do. So, John Walker, David Cameron today has used career as an example of why we need Trident, and uh, he's made comparisons with the dangers during the Cold War and the dangers of, of nuclear attacks now. Um, is there a comparison to be made? Well, uh, you've got to be very, very careful in, in, in comparisons because a, a nuclear threat is, is two things. One, a, a credible weapon system, and the other is the will uh, or, or the, the intention of using it. Um, and both, I think, particularly when you look at the two, uh, so we say, worrying countries at the present moment, which is North Korea and and Iran, then those circumstances are pretty different. I'd like to um, say how much I agree to with with the previous uh, comments, but I think in uh, Dad's army terms, you know, don't panic, because there is a big difference between conducting three underground nuclear explosions at tests and ending up with a weaponized version of it, a, a, a weapon that can go on the, the, the top of an intercontinental ballistic missile that's going to fly correctly, navigate correctly, and re-enter the atmosphere correctly. Uh, there's a huge difference, a huge gap between those things. However, getting back to your question about... Um, uh, the Prime Minister's comments, then, well, th- those that are arguing against Trident at the present moment, I think they have to justify how they can do that at a time when these two, well, certainly one rogue nuclear nation okay. starting to emerge. Chris, but very quickly. Uh, Michael Heseltine, who was the Defence Secretary at one time, said if we didn't have Trident... We wouldn't buy one. And that's where the debate should start. Uh, so, John Walker, stay with us, because this week marks the 95th anniversary of when the Royal Air Force was formed. The major event to ma- mark the occasion takes place at RAF Waddington in July with a display of the RAF from across those 95 years. But what role does the RAF have in the future? And what will future aircraft and squadrons look like? Well, joining us to assess how the RAF has changed and for a look into the military crystal ball is Elizabeth Quintana, an expert in unmanned air vehicles and the use of space assets at the Royal United Services Institute. Uh, Sir John Walker is also still with us. Elizabeth, the RAF has played a vital role in recent conflicts, so is air power still an essential part of any conflict? Yes, um, air air power remains very much um, an integral part of of military force and um, I mean the four fundamental roles of air power, um, that's control of the air, um, air mobility, um, intelligence um, and attack are um, 
uh, still very much um, uh, very key to, to air power today. So, John Walker, how has the RAF role changed over the years? Well, I think the biggest thing that worries airmen at the present moment is that it's become very much smaller. And uh, we are reaching a point now with the defence cuts that are underway where uh, you, you, you start having to talk about this rather interesting term, critical mass. And we are now looking increasingly towards uh, carriers and uh, joint strike fighters at huge, enormous cost uh, against a defence strategy which, at the very least, needs a hearty revision, if not a rewrite. And we're also, I think, many of us worrying about this um, very politically desirable move towards unmanned vehicles. Now, no one is going to say that you want to put a man in a vehicle if you don't need to. But we've got to be very, very careful we don't take that huge step too soon. Indeed. Indeed, in Elizabeth Quintana, this week wings were given to pilots who have been recruited solely to fly drones. Is that the future, do you think? Well, um, if you're looking at the next um, two, three decades, um, there, there will still be um, a requirement for pilots to to get in the aircraft um, and, and fly them themselves. If you look at the types of aircraft that are going to be around, um, you, you still have Typhoon, you'll have Joint Strike Fighter, so um, uh, and and many transport aircraft as well that, that will require pilots. So so yes, there is a desire to to use unmanned or remotely piloted vehicles, but um, but that doesn't mean that we're going to do away with with pilots altogether. Christopher Lee, uh, your thoughts on the future of the RAF? Well, I tell you that in 2018, it's 100 years. And there's something called Trenchard 100, named after the air marshal who is sort of father of the Air Force, or he's he's been lumbered with that sort of uh, sobriquet. Um, The RAF is, I don't mean it's selling, having to sell itself in, in terms of man flight, because, I mean, Elizabeth was talking, mentioned there, transport. I mean, there's no drone that can, can shift gear and people as trans- heavy transport aircraft, which is the thing of the future, and an F-35, which you might be getting in service, uh, then you can still say, nay, say for the next 30 years. But we are reaching a point where, um, as John said, it's, it's all, a lot of it's about money. And I suspect that the, the balance of Trenchard 100 of actually fighting for a place in the recognition, especially a public recognition of the need for an air force, it's not days of the few, it's the days of the future, they are going to be stuffed on one particular thing, and that is 2014, 2015, there's going to be a big, big defence spending review. And when you start in a project like an F-35, which you've got to live with for the results of it for 25, 30 years, or it's a helicopter like Sikorsky, it's only for 50 years, that's when you become vulnerable. Briefly, Elizabeth, against that backdrop, then, the future of the, the defence spending and the past experience, the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan, has that changed the thinking? Well, um, actually, interestingly, um, Iraq and Afghanistan was all about... Um, uh, coin doctrine and um, uh, you know and, and winning hearts and minds but actually if you look at the way that General Petraeus and others have used air power as the asymmetric advantage against um, insurgents um, I, I think um, air power has been um, 
in some ways uh, the unsung hero of the last um, two conflicts um, uh, because it just wasn't fashionable. It wasn't fashionable to talk about it. Um, the army was in the lead and, and they wanted to, um, uh, to discuss how they were um, uh, winning um, the, the, the wars on the ground. So, um, so, so no, uh, air power has always been important. Mm. Air power remains important. In fact, if you look at what David Cameron was saying when he was in Libya um, earlier this year, he said, you know, the interventions of the future, we're, we're going to need more um, intelligence assets, we're going to need more um, transport assets. And, and it was more about air, air power and, and the ability to go in and, right. and come out quickly that was, um, right. uh, was attractive to him. All right, Elizabeth Quintana and Sir John Walker, thank you very much for your time today. Uh, Christopher, just before we go, um, big news for the Royal Navy next week. Well, yeah, it's the new First Sea Lord on Tuesday. Uh, uh, Sir George um, Zambalis uh, takes over from Mark Stanhope. Uh, it's nice. Uh, uh, Sir George is a helicopter pilot talking about air power, and he would agree that you need more helicopters, but only we've given to the Navy. Um, Mark Stanhope is a submariner. It's going to be a different viewpoint. But the other thing to watch for next week, next Wednesday, House of Commons Defence Committee is going to publish its report, Securing the Future of Afghanistan, which is where we started. All right, well, that's all we have time for this week. My thanks to all of our guests and our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Also, a big thank you to our new listeners who've joined us for the first time this week on the UK Basis Network. Hello to you. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter, and you can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. And remember, you can listen to us again our website, bfbs.com slash SITREP. Thanks for listening. See you next week.